We're going to be continuing on in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. And you'll be glad to know that we're taking a pretty big chunk today. And you can pray for me that I'll finish it. So let me read for you a good chunk of chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She, is, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would not have younger widow so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is good and true and enduring forever. We ask, Father, that it would be helpful to us this morning by the power of your good spirit. Amen. So, we have a pretty big section here on widows and kind of that sort of thing in the church and how to, how to handle that. And what to do for widows. And what widows should be doing for themselves. And, but he starts the section by giving uh, Timothy a little bit more of a help as a pastor, a young pastor. By saying, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him. And as you would a father, a younger man as brother, and older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Showing that uh, the command and exhort that he has told Timothy to do for his church, for his flock, is not to be as a slave master or a slave driver. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, the fact that, yes, there are things that are good, right, and true that we should teach and preach and hold to as a church. But the fact is that we're all at different places in our spiritual walks, and we all have different things that we need to hear at different points. And that although we teach and exhort and preach and command We also come alongside and help and encourage and exhort in in very particular ways to particular people. That it's not just a blanket, one-size-fits-all 
for everybody, you get the same treatment. Uh, but there has to be particular, particular, part, I'm not say, differences um, amongst us and how, how a pastor and the elders relate to each one of us. Um, and this has to do with particularities not only of age and gender, um, but also of just relationship. Uh, you know this through just regular living, that if you have a, a boss who has been a friend and a good boss, that you will take a command or a rebuke from your boss that has been like that almost without a thought. You'll just go, oh, yeah, that's right, Bill. Yep, yep, I'll get, I'll get right on that. However, if you have a boss who is nasty... <laughs> And they go, hey, I need you to do this. And you don't really want to do it. And you might do it because your employment requires you to do it. But it's not pleasant. It's not good. It's not fun. It's bad for everyone. Brings down the whole company morale. And you have companies that begin to grow in their reputation for being a place that no one wants to go work. We want to be a church where although we are constantly preaching, teaching, commanding, exhorting, that we're doing it with encouragement and love so that people don't think our church is a domineering church, but people know our church to be a loving church who is not overbearing. Um, And that comes from me as a pastor, and that will come, hopefully, Lord willing, soon from our elders and has been here, really, in, in form in the trustees for many years, that these men have cared for you as brothers and sisters and mothers and and. Uh, fathers, that they have been with you, helping you to see things and to do things that are good for you. And so all of this is coming, right, after we've been talking for several chapters, right? Timothy has been getting this exhortation to deal with these false teachers, deal with them decisively. And we tend to think that that's the most difficult part of being a pastor, right? He deals with it for four chapters, basically, like deal with the false teaching, but then he starts dealing with things that are actually quite a bit more difficult. Uh, because it is difficult to stand up to a guy who's teaching in the church and say, no, you, you can't teach that anymore. You have to sit down, be quiet, stop doing that. But it is much more difficult to say to an older woman or an older man in the church whom you love, I don't think you ought to do that. And we know that because we do that in our own families, right? It's much easier when your family has an enemy outside the family at the gatherings to go, that so-and-so over there did such-and-such, and and we're really angry at them. But it gets a little more tense when the focus turns inward, and you have to say to your dad or your brother or your sister, you ought not have done that. Then the tension starts, and so really what's happening is he has built up Timothy to be prepared to do this work with false teaching so that he will have a little bit more of a backbone when he actually has to do the hard work of pastoring, which is dealing with older women and younger men and younger women and older men, older women. Uh, and then later on, specifically, right, this 15 verses or so, widows are a special group, right? Those who have lost the one they have married and loved and raised children with. That's a difficult thing to go to a widow and to say anything at all in form of an exhortation that could even possibly be construed as you might possibly think about doing this differently. And so Timothy needs a lot of help in this. We need a lot of help in this. It's hard work to do this to one another, to help one another when people are vulnerable and weak, 
from things and hurts and pains on this earth. And then further on, we get to even more difficult things, which is rebuking fellow elders, right? So other men who are leaders in the church and saying to one another, stop doing that. And then the slaves and slave owners, so dealing with your work out in the real world and saying, be a good worker, be a good boss when you're outside these walls. I've heard of your reputation. It's not good. We need to deal with it. Because what does that entail? That entails, let's just all be honest, if I go to a man who is a business owner and I say, I hear bad things about your business, what is going to be on everyone's mind? If so-and-so leaves, the bank account will drop at this church. And the very next thing that Paul tells Timothy to deal with is rich people in the church. The reality is, it is difficult to deal with these things because you always feel it. You pretend like it, no one thinks about it, but everyone thinks about it. Everyone knows. That's why we tread so lightly when we think someone's a big giver in the church. And the bigger a church gets, the more weight occurs. I was just talking about this, I think, with Daryl. That, you know, I'm aware of a couple of very large churches up in the Indianapolis area uh, that have caved, I think, unduly uh, regarding Black Lives Matter, who have been faithful churches for decades and decades. But their church budget is in the 10 to $12 million range, and they probably very likely have some extremely large givers in those churches to the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars who may be left of the political circle and not like to be told, we think you're a little bit off on this. And the pastor has to deal with the fact that if he goes and confronts this man, his church budget of $12 million may drop a couple of million dollars when this guy and ten of his buddies leave the church. These are real things. These are not false concerns. And so what we need to do as a body is realize that the work of pastoring, the work of shepherding is difficult. That there are things that weigh on a pastor that shouldn't weigh on a pastor. And so you have to encourage me and the elders to be free to do our work so that we can actually be helpful without having to worry that if we say this, if we come to you and we say, we we think this will be better for you, and we think the way you've been doing this or thinking is not good, that we're free to do that so that we don't have to think, If I say this, it's going to cause this mega problem in the church, and so it's better if I just be quiet, keep it to myself. And you know this, right? These divisions that have divided families that we know, that we grew up in, that fester and wound for decades, that we we don't deal with because the pain of actually poking at it is so great. But if someone would just relieve the wound, it would be better for us. And so one of the ways that you can serve the church, and I think in many ways, because we are small, that this is true, and we can continue to build this as we grow, that you continue to encourage your pastor and your elders to do this kind of work among you. That even though it's difficult, and even though it can be unpleasant, that you give them freedom by praying for them, praying for me, by asking questions that may put you in a position where we might say, I don't think that's a good way to go, by being open and honest with us when we ask you questions, and then being willing to receive correction. 
And that puts all of us in vulnerable places that are uncomfortable in our society to ever touch. But it's good for us to go there because it builds the whole body up together into our head, Jesus Christ. It keeps us from being reliant on this person or that person or this giving and that giving or what if we say this and this family leaves. But that we rely on Christ who is our head, who saves all of us and keeps us all. And that sin is in us. It's around us. It's done to one another. And that if we're dealing with it all the time, it will be natural and okay. And we won't have these constant worries. So all of that as background to this on widows. True widows versus false widows. Now even saying that, and having thought about this for a long time before today... Not just this week, but ever since I've read this passage, years, probably a decade ago, when I read this and went, Paul, um, can you really say someone's not a true widow? I mean, how offensive can you possibly get about one of the most painful things that can happen on this earth? The loss of a spouse, the loss of a husband. And just think about what's going on in these 15 verses. Paul is saying you have to be able to look at the situation at hand and decide, is this woman a woman who has been faithful to God or not? And if she has, she's deserving of being enrolled as a widow of the church. And if she has not, if she's proven herself to be frivolous and a busybody and spends her time idly and doesn't care a whit for the church, but then... Ten years in, she comes and says, hey, I've spent all my money. The church better back me up. And we have other widows who have been godly and have given to the church of their time and love and energy. Will we deprive the ones who have given so that the one who has taken will have something? That is a very difficult judgment to make. And here he's saying to, to Timothy, here are your guidelines for making this really difficult judgment in the household of God about who will receive help and who will not. To take it out of widowhood for a second, because we can usually see this more clearly uh, when we talk about it without going head on like Paul does, because Paul has a bit more of the Spirit of God in him than, than many of us. Right? We, we like to deal with things a little more indirectly. So we know that there are people who go around to churches asking for money and funds and that sort of thing all the time. Um, And so if we ever get to the point where we're open all the time, you know, five days a week, guaranteed, guaranteed people will pull into the church who have been to every other church they saw with the doors open and they will ask for money, they will ask for gas, they will ask for X, Y, Z. And we have to make the decision in the moment Give or not give? How much? How little? Who do we call? Should we call someone to ask? Should we get someone else involved? The deacons, largely, when we have them, will be relied upon to do this sort of thing. Until we have deacons, the elders are called upon to do this sort of work. The disbursement of funds for widows, specifically, was the first recorded fight in the church. Do we remember this? So, this is an Acts. We have the new church, okay? We have 
Brand new, thousands of people added to the church the day of Pentecost, and then thousands are being added. And then chapter 6 of Acts. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, a fight, was a brewing, a difficult thing that nobody wanted to deal with, but finally enough women had had enough and came and said, this is not right. These things are happening and they need to be fixed. A complaint by the Hellenists, which is the Greek-speaking Jews, the, the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what was happening? What was the first recorded fight in the church? Was a bad decision on which widows should receive food, help, nourishment from the church in Jerusalem. Two things to note. Well, maybe probably more than two. They were keeping track of who the widows were. They knew who was among them. This is a church probably in the neighborhood of five to 10,000 at this point. And they knew not only who the widows were, but they had at least two lists, probably multiple lists, of Hebraists, Hellenists. They, they knew who was in the church and who had needs in the church. How did they do that? Well, it wasn't just, you know, they sat down one Sunday and just said, okay, after the service, anyone who's a widow, just come up and sign your name here and we'll take care of things. They actually knew one another. They actually knew who had suffered in that way. They were aware of pain and suffering in their midst. And this really is the first lesson in church body politic. The first way to not have conflict, but to resolve conflict. Because conflict is already happening. To resolve conflict is to know one another. To not hide in a pew. To be known and to know. See something and go ask. To be willing to make yourself go over and say, I've noticed X, Y, or Z. Is everything good, bad, indifferent? Whatever it is, we're nervous about doing that, but it's so important to do that. The second thing really to notice here is that more than likely, this was a known problem in the body politic, that everyone kind of knew it was happening. Because when the fix comes, no one says, hey, 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 why are we even, this isn't a problem. We don't need to fix this problem. Nobody's being shorted here. Nobody says that. The complaint rises, and then what happens? The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They called a church meeting. And they said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So everyone knew it had been a problem. They didn't know how to fix it. Finally, enough had happened where some of the women came and said, Hey, we're not getting our full share here. The Hebrew wives, widows are getting more than the Hellenist widows. We need to resolve this. And the apostles did not say, Work this out amongst yourselves. They didn't say, That's not actually happening. They didn't say, quit fighting and bickering. They said, 
you're right. Church meeting. We got a problem to solve. Here's how we're going to solve it. Seven deacons choose from among you some good men who you know to be faithful and who will not be partial, who will be able to make right judgments in the distribution. Men of sound mind, full of the Spirit. Right? We read the deacons list. We want men who are godly, who can look at a situation that is extraordinarily touchy and say, you get X amount, you get Y amount, and this is Y. This has been a difficult problem for the history of our church. It's not new to us. So then, uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmena, Parme, sorry, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then what happens? So they have this huge conflict of a huge megachurch. Think like redemption, right? Imagine this happening at redemption. So a complaint arises that these 20 widows are getting mistreated compared to these 20 widows. And what Daryl, Daryl Land, right? I still haven't got to meet him. Daryl Land calls a church meeting of all 4,000 people or however many people go there. And he says, all right, we need to fix this problem. It sounds absurd. We, we almost can't imagine it happening at a church whether it's redemption or not, I'm just using it because it's the local one. It seems crazy to think that they would just go, you're right, let's fix the problem. Everybody get together. Here's how we're going to fix it. This is what we're going to do. Here's our plan. That's what we do as a church. Conflict is going to happen. There's going to be issues. Even in 30 people, there are going to be issues. There are issues, not going to be. There are issues. How are we going to fix them? How are we going to resolve them? Will it please God? And then, having figured out how to solve the problem, it pleased the people. They put the deacons in place, those seven men. And now listen to what happened after conflict about widows in the early church in Jerusalem. They prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What is the result of faithfulness in the midst of conflict in a church? Growth. Growth. Because what happens is people will hear that we care about people in our church. But we are not content to let conflict linger and people to split off and to be by themselves. But we work to be one body, united under our head, Jesus Christ. So that is the underlying principle, right? And the underlying fact that the difficulty of how to deal with and care for and love widows has been at the heart of Christian conflict for 2,000 years. It is the initial conflict, and it continues. You can trace this kind of thing all through history, that we have historically always been figuring out how to help widows, and orphans. And we've been more right and more wrong through the centuries and millennia. True religion is this, James says, the caring of orphans and widows. How do we do it? How do we help do it? How do we do it right? How do we actually be good at it? 
So this is not secondary to the church. This is not a tertiary issue. It's not like way out there on the ends. And we should know this because we have widows here. Women who have lost their husbands and have suffered in losing their husbands. How do we care for them? How often do we care for them? And we will fail. I will fail. I have failed. But we need to think. We need to pray. We need to act. We need to do. Because what we want are widows who do make themselves faithful in all godliness. True widows who make supplications and prayers night and day. Have you guys ever heard, there's a movie that came out a few years ago called um, War Room. Have you heard of this movie? I would encourage you to watch it if you haven't watched it. War Room is about a couple who's having major marital issues. I, th- I can't remember, it's been several years since I watched it, but I think it's adultery. And then the woman in the marriage meets an older Christian lady who teaches her about praying in her, quote, war room. And the story is more about the younger woman, but this older lady on her knees praying for the saints. Imagine, imagine freeing up women in our church to do this work, to helping them have the thought and compassion and knowledge to do it, to letting yourself be known to them so they can actually pray for you, to confessing your struggles and your problems so that they can bear them before the throne for you. And how good and sweet that is, that we are mutually needed. That they are not excluded from the body of Christ, as though they have nothing to offer. They have infinitely much to offer. Infinitely much. And this doesn't just exclude, you know, we're talking about widows, but also single older folks. Widowers. Who don't have all the the strain of a family to care for these days and are alone and have set their hope on God, how do we help them help us? How do we give them a light and a hope for our church? How do we help you? We want you to be constantly in prayer for us, so we want to be known by them. We want you to know us. We want you to know when we're worried about our kids. And here is the beautiful part of this whole passage. So, verse 10, they need to have a reputation for good works. This is a, they're talking, he's talking about widows again. If she has brought up children. Now, this word is not if she has birthed children, if she has given birth to children. It's not talking about wombs here. Brought up children is a specific word. It's only found once in the whole New Testament. It's child rearing. It's training children. If she is there, she should be actively helping me, our other father, other mothers, to know our children and how to help them. This is the work. We want to produce families of generations who care and love the gospel. Because what is assumed also in this passage, generational families and churches is assumed in this passage. Because two different times, maybe three different times in this passage, it says, like verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he is 
denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Later on it says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them and let the church not be burdened. That's assuming that children, children, children are in the church. That what we want is not a church of one generation. We want churches of multiple generations. And the way that we can prepare ourselves for that. So right now, we are largely one generation. Right? We have two young families here, mine and the Lukies. We are largely one generation. How can we work so that in the future, that's not true of us? For those of you who are older, pray. Find out the needs of those under you and pray for them. Find out what we struggle with. Find out what is actually bothering us about our kids. What is the problem that we have with our three-year-old or a five-year-old or a 14-year-old? And then, as the rest of the church cares for you, by you caring for us, it's mutual. Which means every part of the body is needed. There is no part that is excluded. There is no part that is not necessary. Everyone in this body, the 30 or so people in this room who belong to this church, are necessary for one another. Without you, without you, without you, we are not this body. And so, underlying all of this is just this unbelievable love that Paul assumes is happening in the Ephesian church. Love in the church. That cares, that is aware, that doesn't shy away from asking hard questions, that doesn't think, you know, that seems a little off, but also tea time at two, tea time it is. It's saying, no, you know, I got to go ask what's going on here. And that sort of underlying love is a big deal. I've given the example, you know, of workplaces with bad reputations. There are also places that everyone knows are great places to work. That everyone in the whole community goes, oh, if you're going to get a job, try to get in there. It's hard to get in. But go there. They take care of their employees. We don't want to be hard to get into like one of those places. We want it to be easy to come and to stay. But we want the reputation of we want to go there. They love. They care. They know. They don't just shrug their shoulders when you come and shrug their shoulders when you go. And so what is actually happening in our families? What's actually happening with kids? What's actually happening with grandkids? Nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters. And you'll fail, you know. I failed this week to do many, many things, to care for many, many people in this church, to make phone calls that I said I would make, to come visit when I said I would visit. And all I can do is go and say, I should have been there. I should have called. I'll do it better this week. That's the same for you. Make the effort. Fail. You're going to fail. You're going to forget. You're going to forget to write it on your calendar. You're going to forget that phone call. You're going to forget to check in. 
Check in the next time. Call the next day. And get to know our widows. Okay? It is an unbelievable privilege to serve the needy and the hurt in this world. It is a privilege. Because who amongst all who have ever walked this earth did it the best and the most? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who did not count equality with the God as something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself, taking the very form of a servant, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Dying for one another. Dying for one another. These are the marks that make a church go from a club, a happy hour, a nice to have, to actually being the vibrant, living community of the holy God of all the universe. That's the difference. And we have all the hope in the world to accomplish it. This is not an impossible task. And so when you hear this and you think, I, like when, I, when I'm preparing this sermon and I think, well, here's the 50,000 ways that I have failed and sinned in the last week as I'm preparing this. And then I get here this morning and think of 10 more on the way to the pulpit. You will fail in sin. I will fail in sin. But we have what? A God who saves us. This theme of godliness, right? All through this scripture, all through the things. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Here is a true staying worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the mystery of godliness. I'm a sinner. I will fail and sin. And God saves me. And so I continue to get up every morning and I go, well, that day is behind me. My sins are behind me. God has forgiven me. Here's a new day to be godly. And at the end of that day, when I have again failed and sinned, God is with me. He saves sinners. I am a sinner. Therefore, I am still one of his. Next day. Same, repeat, recycle, renew, rinse, all the time. Um, and we're, you know, I keep saying this, but we, this is, this is the, the crazy part about the Christian life. There are a thousand way, things that are true and good that we teach and believe, command and exhort. These last few weeks in Sunday school, have been talking about what our church, what our presbytery believes And I've said repeatedly in that class, you don't have to believe all these things. But I don't want things to be hidden from you if you're going to be a member of this church. I want you to know that in six weeks I might say this thing, and you might go, Whoa! I did not know you believed that! There's to be no hiding. But also what we want is the fact that these are what God has declared to be the true things. And these are the things we aim at. And by God's grace, we'll attain some of them. But we will never attain all of them. We will never, ever be a perfect church. We will always forever fall short of the aim that we have. And that is for two reasons. One, we are still fighting our sinful flesh. And two, 
to show us some piece of humility that we depend daily on our Savior and not just kind of, sort of, but every day we need a Savior. So that is my message this morning. Get to know our widows. Care for them. Do better than I do. Think about them. Pray for them. And to, to our widows, love us just like you have. Care for us just like you have. To our singles, do the same. Get to know us. Find out about us. And then pray for us. And then, then, it, then we will all need one another. There will be no one who is above the other. We'll all be wrapped up in this whole thing together. Christ's body. Let me pray for us, and then we will stand and sing number 767 for all the saints.